Susie, we're going to do the announcement next week. Yeah. I'm just going to do a little family talk with you guys um, about being here on Sundays and being connected and serving, but I don't want to, I don't want this moment to um, be about that. I don't know who this is for, but this just came to mind. You know, at some point, at some point, I think uh, we need to get to a place where instead of telling Jesus about the mountains in our lives, we need to tell the mountains about the Jesus in our lives. Let me say that once more. This is what came to me while I was standing over there. At some point, instead of constantly telling Jesus about the mountains and possible things in these big, we need to begin to tell those things about this Jesus that we just sang about. Um, what mountains and impossibilities and there's just, there's just no way. Are you facing right now? And maybe for weeks, months, years you've been praying about at which point do you go, you know what, I know who it is that I serve. I know who it is that I believe. I know who it is that I just sang about. Um, does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, some of you are nodding. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's okay. The reason why I wanted to jump right in is because the, the journey that we're Beginning, which may last through the whole summer, is sacred rhythms. Sacred rhythms. Arranging our lives for spiritual formation. Okay? Sacred rhythms. Arranging our lives for spiritual formation. And we're going to talk about silence and solitude stillness, Sabbath. Will you just say that with me? I'll put up on the screen, silence and solitude, stillness and Sabbath. How many of you, as you see that, read that, does your heart just go, ah? <laughs> I know, like two-thirds of us are like, nah. Which is the reason why we're going to spend an entire summer just silence and stillness and solitude and Sabbath. What we're doing here, what New Community tries, is so countercultural in many ways. And I'm going to tell you, what we're going to talk about is so countercultural, so counterintuitive. I don't know how many of us grew up in church and we heard sermons on this stuff. I didn't hear a single sermon and I grew up in church since way. It's only been recently that these spiritual practices have truly formed who I am. Can I just say this, and I, I exaggerate, this is not an exaggeration. I would not be standing here today as a pastor if these practices were not integrated into my life recently. I don't know if my marriage, frankly, would have made it. I don't know, I'm not exaggerating. I don't know if not for these practices in my spiritual life, I am still in ministry today. You guys know I was gone almost for a year. I didn't know if I was gonna come back. So 
So as we begin this today, let, let me just say this, because if we're going to arrange our lives for spiritual formation, immediately I want to address a couple things, and that is the misunderstanding that some of us have. Spiritual formation, spiritual formation is not about gaining more head knowledge. It's not about gaining more information. And I just need to put that up right there. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing that you and I need to know about. As we, as we journey through this, most of us are going to come from the perspective of what am I going to learn? What am I going to... I need you to know something up front. If that is our approach, can I learn about these things? We are missing the point. Matter of fact, someone said this, and I think it's so true. Especially of Christians in North America, we are educated well beyond our obedience. We are educated, oh my gosh, we are educated well beyond our obedience. Some of you are so full of head knowledge that you're about to pop. See, listen, the question is not, do you think it's a good idea to care, care of the poor? The question is, do you actually care for the poor? The question is not, do you think family is important? Everybody would say family is important, but do you actually make your family a priority? The question is not, do you think being generous is a good thing? The question is, are you actually generous? The question is not, is church a priority? The question, do you actually make it a priority? The question is not, do you think prayer is a good thing? The question is, do you actually pray? The question is not, do you think racial reconciliation is a good biblical? The question is, are you living your life as a racial reconciler? I could keep going. Do you get the point? James 1 says what? This is so convicting. Don't merely what? Listen to the word. It says what? Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Can I just tell you something about God that I've realized? When God tells you to do something, he'll often wait for you to do it before he tells you anything else. When God tells you to do something, he's suddenly going, why don't I hear from God? I feel like God is distant. Why do I feel? Because when God tells you to do something, he will wait for you to do it. Northwestern students, good morning, sitting up here. <laughs> He'll wait for you to do it before. God, listen, God will often wait for you to take the first step before he reveals your next steps. I feel like sometimes God's going, why are you asking me all the time about things you don't know when you have no intentions of doing things that you do know? The question is not we don't know what to do. The problem is that we don't do what we know. So I'm going to ask you again. Are you doing God is asking you to do. I'm 
exhausted of North American Christianity that just wants to learn information, discussion, conversation, podcast, more sermons, more learners. Here's a question for you. There's some diagnostic questions I'm going to ask throughout the rest of the morning. Diagnostic question for you that I want you to ask is, what's the one thing you've learned about following Jesus that has not moved from your mind to your hand? Before you learn one more thing, before you listen to one more sermon, I can't believe I'm about to quote Phil Knight of Nike. Just what? Just do it. Hey, CC, is this resonating with you? New community, you guys are so smart. I wouldn't say the smartest, but I, no, 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 I would, no, no, no. There's some smart folk in here, smart folk in here. And you actually think listening to sermons and reading and learning is going to result in spiritual transformation, don't you? See, I would say spiritual formation, sorry about that little rant. Um, I'd say spiritual formation is not about learning, but I would say, and you've heard this in New Community a lot, it's about unlearning some stuff. Spiritual formation, let me say that again. It's really about unlearning. What do I mean? We need to unlearn and deconstruct deep patterns of thinking, behaving, feeling that have been taught from family, from society, from culture, yes, from church. Spiritual formation is this process of, I think, unpacking and unlearning things that we've learned so that, and here's the goal, the goal of everything that we do is so that we would become more like what? Jesus. Here's what Paul says in Galatians uh, 4.19. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they'll continue until Christ is fully formed in your lives. The whole thing of all of this is so that your spouse, your children, your coworkers can look at you and go, you're becoming more like Jesus every day. I see a little bit more resemblance to Jesus every day. And in order for you to get there, and, and, and please, please give me your ear. In order to get there and unlearn some stuff, here's what we need to do. We need to begin to look underneath the iceberg of our lives. And can you put that image up there? If you're a new community, this is nothing new to you. See, the, the, the tip of the iceberg is the top 10% of our lives that people observe, people see. Or as I had coffee with a, with a fellow brother who's been a Christian for 40-some years this week, he said that he came out a little ago and, and confessed of some of his deepest addictions to a group of other fellow people in ministry. And this is what he said. He said, he said the thing about me was that there's a public persona, but there is this small, real me. And I lived most of my life. He's in his 60s saying, if I showed you the real me, the small me, the secret me, the one that nobody knows about, will you still love me? Will you still accept me? Will you still think I'm okay? And the tip of the iceberg is the public persona that people see, but it's that real me that's underneath the iceberg. The unfortunate thing is, of course, in the church, 
we focus on the tip of the iceberg. That's why spiritual formation is about Bible study and Bible knowledge and going to church and serving. All those are good things. But the reason why you and I act the way we do, how many of us, how many of us when stress takes toll, you go, what, 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 where did that come from? When, when, when life throws a curveball, your spouse is like, who did I marry? And the reason why we act like that, it's not the tip of the iceberg, it's what? It's the small, real me. And you know what's underneath the iceberg? I'll tell you what's underneath the iceberg. Your fears, your insecurities, your shame, your guilt, your regrets. That's the underneath the iceberg stuff. Can I, can I share good news with you? Yeah. Say yes. Yeah, yeah. Please. Jesse's like, please. It's depressing. Can I share that? Jesus is all about wanting to transform that underneath the iceberg stuff. Amen. See, the good news of the gospel is that your past, your mistakes, and your sins, they may explain you, but they don't have to define you. Because what God wants to do is get to work in that the secret me, the real me, and nobody's, he wants to transform that. But here's the thing, watch this, watch this. The extent to which we're willing to give Jesus access to that underneath iceberg is the extent to which he will transform you. I want to say it again. The degree to which you and I are willing to give Jesus access to that underneath the iceberg stuff. I'm talking about your fears, insecurities, your shame, your regrets. To which if you're sitting there going, well, I've done that. No, you haven't. I haven't. We haven't. Matthew 7. One of these sobering passages that I come on to again and again. Do you remember? Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles, and then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Now, some of us have read that all of our lives, saying, Jesus says, and you never knew me. That's not what he says. He says what? I, Jesus, never what? Come on, Jesus, you're God. You know everything. He knows everything about you. Well, the only way he could know you is if you give him access. Let me illustrate this way. There's only one person on planet Earth who looks at me and says, I know you, Peter Holmes. Why? Because I've given her what? Access to be known and to be loved. Have you given Jesus? Oh, it feels uncomfortable in here right now. Have you given Jesus access to the innermost parts of your life? 
the underneath the iceberg stuff. Do you know what you're missing out on if you don't? Healing, freedom. You know what else? Intimacy. You miss out on intimacy of being fully known and fully loved by your creator. Do you wonder why you feel like, I've been going to church all my life. I'm here every Sunday doing church things, but I've hit a ceiling. My relationship with God, could it be, could it be, could it be that you have not given Jesus access? In 1853, a guy named William Holman Hunt painted a picture. Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says what? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to come in. I'm going to rebuke you for all your sins. I'll come in. I'm going to tell you all the things you're not doing. I'm going to tell you. No, 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 no. I will come in and what? I want to come in. I just want to break what? Bread with you, bro. And that context, fellowship was what? The most intimate way of saying, I accept you. And Jesus says, why? Open the door and I will. Do you know? Do you know? Listen, do you know? The 50 years later, he said, I didn't just paint that. He said there was a divine inspiration, a prompting. That's the picture. You can't really tell, but do you know what's striking about this picture? It was intentional. There is no door handle on the door. Do you know why? Because the door of your heart can only be opened from the inside. The door to your heart. Have you given Jesus access invitation? Peter, why are we talking about this? If you need to go early, and I hope you don't, because you want to stick around for the, I'll tell you why. You can't give Jesus access when you're busy. You can't give Jesus access when you're in a hurry all the time. You can't give Jesus access when you're on the run. You can't give Jesus access if you're on the go, 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 go. You can't give Jesus access unless you are Still. How are you doing? 
How's your soul, friend? How's your soul? Anybody's soul fatigued this morning? Say yes if it is. Anybody? Letty Coleman, an American devotional writer, writes about an American who travels to Africa and hires a bunch of guides and carriers for a journey. And being an American, she wants to go far <laughs> as quickly as possible. And she's very happy that on the first day they made a ton of progress and traveled tons of miles. But the second day, all the carriers that she had hired just sat and didn't move. So she goes to the head carrier and says, I paid you lots of money, can we get going? To which this African carrier replied to the woman, on the first day, we traveled too fast, too far. And we're waiting for our souls to catch up to our bodies. Has anybody traveled too far, too fast? Do you know what it's like for your soul to catch up with your body? Am I preaching to a wall this morning? What, what, is, what is going on? Cece, what is going on? They're waiting for their souls to catch up. Okay. They're waiting for your souls to catch up. Okay. No, no, that's good. I think, I think so. I think so. But actually, listen, listen. Soul fatigue, which is the title of this sermon. The problem about your soul being fatigued is there's no gauge that tells you you're running on empty. So how do you know? Let me give you some signs. It's been so intense the last 10 minutes. Let's lighten the mood a little bit, okay? Oh, I'm sorry. This probably won't lighten the mood. <laughs> It'll make you. How do you know if your soul is fatigued? How do you know if your soul is here? here how do you know? Well, well, here's some signs. Number one, things seem to bother you more than they should. By the way, if any of these resonate with you, say, uh-huh, or something, ready? Things seem to bother you more than they should. Anybody? 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 You, you know your wife's gum chewing that you thought was so cute and quirky? Now you look at it going, you have a massive character flaw. Anybody experiencing this recently? If things bother, yeah, yeah, but if hands are going up. Put down your hand, you don't have, it, things just bother you more than they should. Listen, when your reaction is disproportionate to the event, you have a problem. Parents, if giving your kids a bath is no longer a joy, but an irritation, you have a Second sign of soul fatigue is it's hard to make up your mind about even simple decisions. Indecision. Indecision is a good indicator. Your soul is. Third sign. Impulses to eat or drink or shop are harder to resist. Interesting. We poo-poo on overeating and overdrinking, but we're okay with online shopping just to make ourselves feel better. What's that all about? 
Four, you favor short-term gains in ways that leave you with long-term costs. Remember, Israel ended up worshiping a golden calf because Moses, dang it, Moses, just took too long. Jesus, by the way, was tempted, take the shortcut. Just bow down to me and you'll have the kingdoms of the, and Jesus said, ah. Some of you right now, some of you right now, are being tempted to take shortcuts. Please don't. Please don't. Fourth sign. Your judgment suffers. It's amazing how your judgment gets impaired when you're tired and your soul is fatigued. Next, you have less courage. Ah, fatigue makes cowards of us all, someone said. You need courage to lean into discomfort and grow. You need courage to be vulnerable and transparent to experience a new community, authentic community. You need courage to speak truth to power. You need courage to take risks and attempt great things for God. But you cannot be courageous when you are what? You suffer from hurry sickness. <laughs> Before I even explain what that is, how many of you go, yup, that's me? Anybody? How many of us hurry, uh, uh, and I'm going to talk more about this next week, how many of us suffer from hurry sickness? We live in a culture where we live with this illusion that if we hurry, it will actually buy us more time. That's why we buy things that we actually think will save us what? More time. The number one shampoo in this country rose to number one because it combined shampooing and conditioning. What? <laughs> Did you know that? Millions of people have spent money because they didn't want to waste extra time having to rinse their hair. Domino's became number one pizza because they promised to deliver in what? 30 minutes or less. You and I eat fast food. Why? Because it's good? Because it's what? Fast. And it wasn't fast enough, so we had drive-thru. And now drive-thru isn't fast enough. So yesterday, my Sophia, track meet, and Parker and I, and Sophia and I, now you have these digital screens. You know what's amazing is that I was like, I'm going to save some time. It took me like 15 minutes. <laughs> People that were in line, like sitting and eating, and they're done. I'm like, Sophie, baby girl, what, how is this, what? How many of us get frustrated because the internet isn't fast enough? Listen, y'all. Listen, I'm going to say something. I'm, I'm dating myself. Does anybody remember the days of dial-up? <laughs> if you're a millennial, you're like, what the heck is he talking about? I'm going to tell you something. Dial-up. That's what it sounded like when your internet was actually... We actually sit there and we're like... It just is not fast enough. Do you know why we're drawn to hurry? Do you know why? Do you know why? Let me tell you something. Because it makes you, because it makes you feel productive. And you and I live in a culture where if you don't feel productive, your existence can't be justified. Why are you talking about silence and stillness, Peter? Because your soul is toxic. We've drunk this air. We've drunk this air. When, 
That's why when something doesn't feel productive, it feels like a waste of time. There are some of you sitting right now going, oh, do you know why? Because this doesn't feel what? Say it with me. Do you know why you are going to, listen, where we go, this sermon series, and I don't know if half of you are going to show up next week, but this sermon series is going to feel so uncomfortable because everything in you is going to scream, I don't feel productive. And God says, that's the whole point. You're going to want to run from this. Why? Because your soul is so toxic. My soul is so toxic because we drunk this air that the thought of praying, can I tell you something? Real prayer is supposed to feel unproductive. Transformative prayer is supposed to. Why? Because you just sit there being with God. Allowing the Holy Spirit to do its slow work in you. Do you know why we're drawn to our sickness? Because you and I have breathed this air. And you know what it does? Do you know what hurry sickness does? It keeps you from evaluating life and what really matters. Like family and church and community. Do you know what else it does? Listen. Do you know what busyness is? I'll tell you what busyness is. Busyness is, I'm going to keep myself busy because I don't want to feel these emotions that are lurking underneath. If I can just keep myself busy, if I just keep myself busy, 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 if I just do these activities, honey, why are you so busy? Because I just need to. When truth is, if you were to stand still, the stuff underneath the iceberg, like feelings like anger and bitterness and fear and resentment and envy and jealousy and shame might come up to the surface. So if I can just keep myself busy, I don't have to think. How do you know this stuff so much, Peter? Because it's my life. Busyness is not about a disordered schedule. It's about a disordered heart. Jesus was the busiest man who ever lived. But he was never hurried. Let me say that again. Jesus had more to do on his plate on a typical day than you will ever have, and yet you never see him hurrying. You just see him walking through the day, prompted by the Spirit, I'm going to heal you. What about 500 others? Nope, nope. I'm going to talk to you. What about 1,000? Nope, nope. He's busy but never hurried. He is never off the mission of loving God and loving people. Loving God, loving people. Here's another diagnostic question. I'm going to come around to again and again and again. What are you doing to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life? So you're going, I've never asked that question. Of course you haven't. Following Jesus can't be done on a sprint. Do you know why? Do you know why? Do you know why? Because by definition, you can't go faster 
than the person you're following. By very definition, if you're following Jesus, which is our call, follow me, you can't go faster than him. You cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. You cannot live a healthy life with a hurried soul. I can't believe I'm preaching this in North America. I can't, I can't believe I'm preaching this in Chicago. I can't believe I'm preaching this to these people sitting here in Chicago in new community whose typical work hour is 70 hours a week, 60 hours a week. And who has time for stillness and silence, Peter? I've got stuff to do. I don't want to listen to this stuff. I don't want to hear this. Uh, there's one more sign of hurry sickness, not quite done yet, and that is you become double soul. What do I mean? James 1.8 talks about a man who is double-minded in all he does. Unstable. Unstable. The word double, listen, double-minded literally in Greek is double-souled or split-souled or Decentered soul is talking about a person whose soul is not anchored and grounded. And listen, when my soul is not anchored or grounded, I'll tell you exactly what happens to me. I begin to then define myself externally by what I do, what I have, and what other people say about me. When I'm not centered, when I'm if anybody else struggles with say amen. When I'm not centered, when I'm anchored, I'm telling you, I begin to go, my identity is what I do, my identity is what I have, my identity is what people say about me. And when I lose all of that, then I lose completely who I am and I begin to live into what my false self. When I'm not centered, I pretend. When I'm not centered, I put on a mask. When I'm not centered, I'm tossed back and forth. When I'm not centered, Does anybody want to be free? Yes. Come on, talk to me. Anybody want to be free? Does anybody want to be whole? Do you want to live the life that God called you to live? Is anybody sick and tired of being insecure all the time? Does anybody want sense of purpose and direction for your life? Anybody, 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 anybody? If you do, then here's the thing. We have to go on a journey where our false self is taken apart. Why? Because it's the only way that God will be able to put you back together. Our false self needs to be emptied so that God can Fill us again. How do you overcome these seductive voices pounding on the door of your heart saying, if you don't do enough, you're nothing. If you don't have enough, you're nothing. If these people don't think you're all that and some, you are nothing. How do you overcome those seductive voices? How do you do it? I'm going to try? No. 
I'll put myself by the bootstraps. No. I'm going to put more. No, 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 no. How did Jesus do it? Do you remember? How did Jesus do it? Here's a, a portrait in the Gospels of how Jesus did it. Real quick. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. See if you can pick up what he did. Uh, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a what? Say it with me. Solitary place. We prayed. Luke 5, 16. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In Luke 6, 12, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Jesus arranged his entire life around these sacred rhythms of silence, solitude, stillness. Jesus, not only the perfect son of God, the perfect man who ever lived, is able to shut out the powerful seduction and the voices because he arranges his busy life around these sacred rhythms of silence, solitude, stillness. Is God's voice the loudest voice in your life? Let me say one last thing and then we need to pivot. The most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you become. That's what you're going to take to eternity. Secondly, you, no one but you, are responsible for your soul. I'm going to say that again. You. No one but you are responsible for yourself. Luke 12, Jesus is preaching on the parable of the rich fool. He's talking about stewardship. And he says to the rich fool, tonight your very soul will be what? Required of you. Do you know the word required is a business term? It described the loan that was coming due. Do you know that God is saying to you and me, your soul is on loan from me. Your soul is on loan from me, and one day, I'm going to sit down with you. We're going to open up the account book and go, what you do with your soul? I did all these things. Not the, not the question. I served on that. Not the question. I gave. Not, not the question. What did you do with the soul that I loaned to you? And if your soul is not healthy, you can't help anybody. How's your soul? How's your soul? I'm waiting for it to catch up to my body, Peter. I know. I know. Half of you are fully present right now, and the other half of you are thinking about tomorrow work. It's okay. I'm going to ask a very vulnerable question. Is that okay? Do you actually want to hear these sermons? Here's the second question. Will you do something about it?
do something about it. Okay, so the next two, three Sundays, we're going to talk about silence and solitude. So this is a teaser, uh, uh, appetizer. Um, help me out here. What, what else? What am I trying to A preview. Uh, anyway, okay. Silence. Here's, 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 here's Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite authors, okay? Here's what he says. By the way, read everything by Henry Nouwen. Just, just read it. Trust me, just read it. Henry Nouwen. Without solitude, it's almost impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and to listen to him. God speaks the loudest when we're the quietest. Speaking of, if you are not willing to hear everything God has to say, you eventually won't hear anything he has to say. If you want to hear his comforting voice, you have to hear his what? comforting voice. And I want to just tell you some good news. God's voice is always loving. Can I get an amen? His voice is always loving. But this sermon series will require real courage, real courage, real courage, real courage, because here is what Henry Nouwen goes on to say. It's not up on the screen, because I need you to lean in and listen. Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is a place of conversion, the place where old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding, no friends to talk with, no phone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. Can anybody relate? Can anybody relate? And I try to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false self in all its vain glory. The task is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my cell until all the seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and they ultimately leave me alone. Then he says, the struggle is real because the danger is real. It is the danger of living the whole of our life as one long defense against the reality of our condition. The wisdom of the desert, he's talking about silent solitude, is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to Jesus. Do you know what he's saying? Do you know why you and I struggle with silent solitude? Because it reminds us that many of us are living a lie. That we're living this false self. Because we have nothing to do. 
You realize, I gotta do, I gotta do. Well, why do you have to do? Because my identity is what I do, yeah. When I'm quiet, I wanna hear, I wanna hear. Why? Because I'm so used to the applause of people telling me how amazing and wonder. When I'm alone, not fixing, solving, controlling, I'm reminded that I'm building my life like a deck of cards. That's why we want nothing to do with silence and solitude. Because it forces you and me to go. Are you living a lie? Do you know what silence and solitude is? It's the practice of dying to ourselves. Death, don't miss this, is silent, still, and alone. Death is silent, still, and alone. And yet Jesus said what? It's only in dying that we could have eternal life. If a seed falls to the ground, do you remember this passage? If a seed falls to the ground, it dies, what? It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces what? Many seeds. This is why just as a culture, we fear death. We fear being alone, being quiet, and being still. But that led to what? Resurrection. That cross We're going to look at Elijah. I'll do one more thing, we're done, and then I'm going to actually give you some time for quiet. Is that okay? And we'll, we'll, we'll delve more into Elijah next week. But I want to leave you with the passage. Okay? I'll leave you with the passage. Listen. Elijah is a prophet of God who does amazing things. And there is a pattern in Elijah's life that we're going to discover, and that is he goes into the desert, silence and solitude, out of the desert, ministry into the world. Into the desert, silence, solitude, out into the world. And we're going to jump all the way to 1 Kings 19 at the end. I'll take you then. At the very, very end, here's where Elijah is. Elijah <clears throat> has literally just defeated 500 prophets of Baal. Do you guys remember? Fire from heaven. 500 prophets of Baal destroyed. But when we find Elijah, he is so fatigued, exhausted, 
suicidally depressed, saying to God, take my life, I'm done. Highest of highs, lowest of lows. And at the end of this journey, he finds himself in a cave. He's in a cave alone, suicidally depressed, so fatigued. Take my life, God. And God, do you remember, appears to him. Do you remember this? Do you remember this? This is where we're going. He appears to him. And this is what happens. First Kings 19, 11. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. The ESV calls it a low whisper. The NASB calls it a gentle blowing. The King James Version calls it a still small voice. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, sign of absolute reverence. In other words, Elijah says, God is here in this place. And went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Let me end with this. Let me end with the imagery. It must have been pretty spectacular, yes? You know, I don't want to minimize the earthquake, fire, and wind. God has an outside voice. Can I get an amen? He, don't get, don't, 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 don't mess around. God has, and he uses it when he wants to. God is an outside voice. But when he wants to get your attention, when he has something really important to say, he whispers. Did you ever think about why? Because when you whisper, it's the most intimate form of communication. If you're standing up here and I am whispering to you, I literally have to have my ear to your what? Your mouth. And I have to lean in and there's no when someone whispers. Do you know why God whispers to you? Because he wants to be as divinely close to you as possible. Is that good news to anybody? The creator of the universe who spoke all of creation into being the creator of the world who said to the waves and the storm, be still. And the whole thing obeyed. When he wants intimacy with you, he comes close and he says, Peter, come here, come here. Son, I love. 
away from this encounter. Knowing in his heart of hearts that God was with him, that God was for him, and that God loved him. Check this out. Even more when he's depressed, angry, alone, not performing. As much as when he was standing on the mountaintop, raining fire from heaven. Trust you and me, child of God. The most important knowing that you need right now is not what do I do about tomorrow, but it's to know in the depth of your heart that God is with you, that God is for you, and when God sees you, a smile comes across his face and love swells in his heart. But you cannot hear the whisper unless you're quiet and still. Unless you're quiet and still. I love you. I want to gift you as we end this service for time and space to hear his gentle whisper. Right where you are. If you're holding stuff, put stuff to the side. To the best of your ability, try to sit up. And I always do this. My hands are freed to say I receive. Just shh. Put your hand, put your arm out. Just 